0: Hi everyone, this is Amy Brown. Today's episode of Maine Currents features an interview with Jim Campbell, one of the station's founders, host most recently of Notes from the Electronic Cottage, and co host with me last year for the year-long series Maine the Way Life Could Be. The interview was recorded on Friday, June 16th. Jim passed unexpectedly and suddenly five days later. Today's show was meant to help listeners learn about Jim and Notes from the Electronic Cottage with a focus on his recent series on AI. And while unfortunately there will not be any future episodes, that series along with his other shows are available on our archives at WERU.org. Before we launch into my last conversation with Jim, his close friend and WERU station manager Matt Murphy is here with a few words. Hey, Matt.
1: Hey, Amy. Well, Jim Campbell. Um, Jim was a super intelligent, very high integrity, and caring person. He really was a really was a great great guy. He was one of the founders of the station and the actually the first voice on the air at eighty nine point nine. There's a great picture of him with Noel Stuckey um, on a, a flatbed truck stage at the Hen House on May first. 1988. And uh, Jim was one of the founders who um, he knew about radio. Uh, He might have been the only one who knew anything about radio because he had managed a station in Buffalo, New York before uh, coming to Maine. And uh, the first uh, volunteer programmers were trained by Jim. And uh, that was, uh, you know, that's some pretty good lineage going back because we still have Many programmers, or a few programmers, I would say, on the air who were trained by Jim back 35 years ago.
0: Including me. Um,
1: inclu- yes. Not at yes. 35
0: years ago, but yeah, he he stayed doing that for a long time.
1: Right. And he also right.
0: had worked with Terry Gross, which a lot of people don't know, and he was too humble would, to tell people. Yeah.
1: Before Terry Gross was Terry Gross, um, he was her uh, her technical producer. So, um, And uh, Jim teamed up with uh, David Snyder back at the beginning of the station to lead the station in the early days. And they were a really good team, great team, um, who uh, we here who are involved with WERU now, listeners, volunteers, and staff, we really owe a great debt to. Um, If you go to WERU.org, you can see some quotes of uh, friends of Jim's and colleagues over the years. And there's one from David And there's another one from uh, Phil Norris that really talk about the uh, beginning of the station and how much we owe Jim for, uh, for that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, notes from the electronic cottage and uh, Maine, the way life could be. And there are many other programs and projects that Jim was involved with over the years and uh, including morning Maine. He was one of the, um, or if not the originator of morning Maine back, back in the day, I once said that yes, with Karen Frangulis And, uh, I once um, said to Jim, you know, Jim, I bet you could interview a rock. And he says, I bet I could. Um So because he was a great interviewer, could talk to just about anybody and ask really, really great questions and really listen to them. His questions, you could tell he was listening. He wasn't just with questions on a piece of paper and he had to rattle through them. He really, um really uh, listened well. And, uh, you know, again, he, as a person, he was both very intellectual and very heart centered it was a, it was a really great combination to have in a person and a great advisor to me when i first became the general manager he came to me and said hey if you need any uh, any help any advisement or anything i can uh, i'm i'm available and uh, i took him up on that and learned uh, you know probably from him the the biggest source of what i learned about uh, doing community radio was from jim so I guess, you know, we miss him terribly, but we were very fortunate to have him in the WERU family. Um, everybody, you think of all the things that have happened in WERU and they wouldn't have happened if he and people like Noel and, um, and David and others and Phil and Deborah and all those folks, uh, didn't get things going. So many friendships, so many things would not have happened, uh, if not for WERU and if not for people like Jim. So thank you, Jim. And, and at this point, there's no information on a public celebration of life. His family had a, a small gathering for him just a couple days after his, after his untimely death. Um, so, but we'll, um, We'll keep folks uh, informed if there is something for him. Say later in the summer, uh, we'll uh, we'll have that uh, posted on uh, social media and on our website. So those who want to, you know, pay tribute may be able to do that. Certainly, anyone who wants to send a card to Jim's family, um, to his brothers and and in laws and in-laws and, uh, and close ones uh, can send it to WERU, um, and you can get the address at our website. So that's. That's what I have to say about Jim miss him terribly. He was, he was quite the, quite the guy.
0: Yeah, definitely. And someone that we were constantly in contact with and was just such, not just a fun person, very humble, great storyteller, funny, but he also was just always made himself available to the station. It's hard to really let listeners know how much he did to make the station what it is today. So.
1: And you work very closely with him. I know. So it's uh Yeah, it's It's, a loss. It's a loss. Yes. But thank you for sharing this interview. Um, Well, thank you for uh, 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 letting me say a few words. But thanks for sharing this interview you did with Jim just uh, just a week before he died. Yeah, less than a week. Yeah.
0: And my thoughts go out to his family and loved ones. And here is the final interview with Jim Campbell here today on Main Currents. This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. This year on Maine Currents, we've been profiling our public affairs and short features producers here at WERU. On last month's show, I spoke with Hazel Stark and Joe Horn, producers of The Nature of Phenology, and Sarah O'Malley, producer of The Essential Rhythm. For this episode, I spoke with Jim Campbell, one of the station's founders and host of many programs over the years, including Notes from the Electronic Cottage, where he had just completed a nine-part series on AI. Jim Campbell.
2: When I moved to Maine, now 40 years ago, I was here before WERU went on the air. And so when I heard about it, I, you know, got a little bit involved in helping things get going. And people said, well, why why are you doing that? Why are you spending time trying to get a new radio station on the air? And I answered by saying, you know, I would just like to have something that I would like to listen to. And that is the truth about Notes from the Electronic Cottage as well. Uh, there wasn't anything at that time. And really, I don't think there is anything now within our radio coverage area that deals with technology and how it affects our everyday lives. And it does affect our everyday lives. I mean, by some estimates, 50 percent. Think about this for a moment. One out of two bills that are introduced into the federal House or Senate have to do in one way or another with technology. You wouldn't know that if you read the paper, except recently now, of course, every third article is about artificial intelligence. But up until uh, November of 2022, you rarely saw very much about technology and how it was interacting with our everyday lives. And so I thought that would be a really good thing to think about and to talk about and give me a little incentive to make sure I keep up on it. And so that's how I did. And the, the title of the, of the piece, Notes from the Electronic Cottage, comes from the fact that when I first moved into a little house down half mile off the paved road, um, there was no electricity in the house. And there was no running water. And there never was running water, actually. But I did eventually get electricity. And so that's where the name came from, the Electronic Cottage. It became the Electronic Cottage once there was power available.
0: Okay. I've actually never even thought to ask you that. That's That's a great story.
2: Well, once upon a time, and I don't remember how long ago, I actually did a little... Uh, episode of the Electronic Cottage explaining that, so it's, that it's it's buried somewhere in the 825 pieces that are on the archives.
0: Yeah, well, weekly for 23 years that's a that's a lot, and there were many years there before we even did archiving. So, yeah. what in your background though? This is a really highly technical subject, so it requires not only understanding the more technical aspects of the reports and the journals and things that you're reading, but also the ability to then translate that into language that the rest of us can understand. So I think there's two different skill sets there that are needed to do what you're doing. What's your background that makes you able to do that?
2: Yeah, well, I never had a science course after high school. And so I've always tried to make up for that by trying to learn as much as I could about various sciences. And when computers, personal computers, first came out uh, back in the, I guess, the 80s probably, and became affordable, my brother and I had a little company and we had to decide what kind of computers we were going to get. And so, you know, I started out, I took that as my job, going through what types of computers were available and which ones would be the most useful for our purpose. And I just have kept on doing that and just been interested in it. And also because technology has such an impact on our lives and the purpose of the electronic cottage has never been to tell people what they ought to do. The purpose has always been to make sure that people had an opportunity to think about what their decisions on making technological choices might mean for them in in a larger context. So, for example, there's never been a sentence on the electronic cottage in 23 years saying, gee, don't buy or don't get a supermarket savings card because that means that everything you buy is being noted and being sold is to, to others probably is that 2% savings worth that to you? It's a question. It's not an answer. And so for many people, they might say, yeah, it is worth it to me. Or Uh, it is worth it to me, the convenience to use a debit card for everything that I buy, even when I buy a pack of chewing gum. And I don't really care if companies that keep track of everything I do know what I do because I don't care about it. I'd rather have the convenience. That's fine. Somebody is making an informed decision. And that's really what the purpose of the program has always been. You mentioned... You know, having some understanding about technological issues and then trying to make them. I think about what I am as as a translator. And that's from translate, translateo in Latin, which means to carry across. And so that's that's what I attempt to do is to carry across from one type of diction in language to other to another that is perhaps more accessible to most folks.
0: Where do you get your information? What, what are the sources that you rely on the most?
2: Well, I, I of course, rely on large national publications like uh, newspapers, for example. I also rely a lot on the trade press. So, for example, there are publications uh, that are specifically aimed at particular niches, just like I'm sure there's one for people who are interested in supermarket freezers, right? Well, there's also one called, for example, um, CIO, which stands for Chief Information Officer. And so that has a perspective of people who are working in large corporations and trying to deal with privacy. There's another uh, that is uh, called CIPO, C.I.P.O. Chief Information Privacy Officers. There's also some magazines which are a little more popular but aren't widespread, like uh, Technology. So I look at a lot of those, and I look at a number of websites, which uh, are, in my opinion, very good. They have people whose full-time job is to keep up with technology. So some of those are Ars Technica uh, is one of them. There's another one called the Register out of Great Britain. And so I I look at those today. It take you know the eight minute or nine minute piece that appears every Thursday morning takes about. It takes better than half a day a week to do easily. And depending on how much research is needed, sometimes, you know, six or seven hours, but usually at least five hours. And so I have I have a little database that I clip articles and things like that that I think might be useful and interesting. It has nine thousand items in it now. So.
0: We're going to focus in a a little while on a recent series that you did, but looking back since you started in 2000, what are some of the topics that Notes from the Electronic Cottage has covered?
2: Well, back in 2000, I started out just looking at very basic things like what is the electronic spectrum? People listen to radio. People watch their televisions. Now, of course, it's much more Internet, but... uh, But they do. And so what the heck is it and how does it work and what kind of laws apply to it? And what is the history of how it was developed in the United States? And, you know, I throw in like to throw in little things like. uh, uh, Suppose you were driving and you heard this, Uh, let's say somebody said you're listening to K.W.A.K., at 96.4 on the radio dial. And you were driving through New York State when you heard that. Why wouldn't that be true? (laughs) Well, first of all, all of the uh, FM stations in the United States that are east of the Mississippi, there are three exceptions, but by and large, they all start with a W. So K-W-A-K, if you're in New York State, you probably are not listening to that. And the other thing is that 96.4 96.4 is not a frequency that any radio any FM radio station in the United States is on because they all end in an odd number. So in the oh. case of WERU it's 89.9, it's never going to be 89.8 or 90.0.
0: Okay, so, I would have had I would have got the first part of that question right, but I wasn't aware of the second part. That's interesting. Right. What? Never what that. What's
2: the first letter in call letters in Canada? C. It's C, of course. And in Mexico?
0: I don't know. Am well, I suppose?
2: No, it's X. Anyway.
0: What, so what? why? <laughs> I just. Do you know why? I don't
2: know. I wasn't that there stands at the for? time. for okay. But it's just yeah. <laughs> well, because X is the first distinguishable con- consonant, I think. But anyway. It doesn't matter. But anyway, so in I try now and then whenever it's possible to leaven the pieces with little pieces of information like that, that people can show off at their next trivia quiz or, you know, just to lighten things up a little bit. So anyway, so in the first year, a lot of things like those basic facts, you know, how does a cellular phone work? How does a TV work? Did we know that the entire FM spectrum is between channel six and seven on the TV, which is why in some places when you're driving through a city and you have your radio tuned down low on the dial, you'll hear the TV station if there's a channel seven in town. Anyways, those are all little things that I think are interesting. And other people have sent little notes and said, wow, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. So, a lot of the stuff in the beginning years was just how things work so that people had an idea to understand that. And simple things like what's a bit? What's a byte? A byte is eight bits, for example. And then what's a kilobyte? Well, that's a thousand bytes. And what's a megabyte? Well, that's a million. And what's a giga? Well, that's a billion. And now on our hard drives, we have terabytes, which is a thousand gigabytes. Yeah. So a thousand
0: uh, billion? uh, Yeah. yeah. Is that trillion? What comes after billion? No, it's not a trillion. Okay.
2: It's it's just a a regular old.
0: Incomprehensible (laughs) number.
2: A regular old, very large number. I can't remember how many zeros at the moment, but anyway, a lot of zeros.
0: You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. This conversation with Jim Campbell about his short feature, Notes from the Electronic Cottage, was recorded on June 16, 2023.
2: We also tried to look at some things like, just as I mentioned, if you have a uh, a supermarket savings card, what happens to that information? You'll notice that it always gets scanned not just supermarkets. Any any place that you have a, a you know a buyer's club card. Well, what happens to that information, and what effect might it have on you? You know, uh, the case of, for example, Target sending information to a teenager who happened to be pregnant. They they didn't know that. They figured it out based on what she bought. Her parents did not know. And they opened the savings packet of coupons that came in through their mailbox. And there was quite a lot of discomfort in that home for quite a while. So those are those are things that it's good to understand. And so you can make a decision why whether or not you find that worthwhile for you.
0: So you're cruising along with things like that, which are really interesting nuggets of information that people may not be aware of. And you're probably a year into it or so when 9-11 hit, did that change the trajectory of your feature at all?
2: Um, Yes. And so all of a sudden there became all kinds of things that had to do with the aftermath of that. And with the great, uh, with the passing of the Patriot Act and with the passing of Section two hundred seven and section two fifteen of various laws, uh, which made our information, our personal information, much more available to not only to government but also to private organizations, which had to collect and transmit that uh, information, like airlines and like banks and. Uh, And and even in some cases, attempts to get information about what library books someone took out, if there was some suspicion about it. And in Section 215, for example, you could get a letter from the FBI saying, we need to know what you want, but you can't tell anybody that they're being investigated. And so some libraries took to putting up a sign in the library on the wall or somewhere, which said there have been no FBI inquiries here. And if there was one, they would take it down. They didn't tell anybody that there was one, but, uh, and so all sorts of organizations started trying to adapt to what was a new world, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. And so, from from 2001 until 2023 those kinds of issues have constantly been real in maine for example the maine legislature passed a resolution saying we're not going to we're not going to make real id cards available and so homeland security said well you better or Nobody's going to be able to get on a plane and nobody's going to be able to go into a federal courthouse and, you know, you're out of order. So we're going to give you a little extension. Well, Maine has had four or five extensions. And now you can get a real ID card at motor vehicles, but you don't have to get one, which is different from a lot of other states. But you still need
0: to have one if you want to fly.
2: Well, if you get a passport or a pass card, you don't have to. A lot of people up in the northern part of Maine who go to Canada often, before COVID, of course, would get these little pass cards, which weren't good for flying, but could get you back and forth across the border. So there's a lot of differentiation in this stuff, and believe me, there's not a lot of great information available about it. And so one of the things that we've tried to keep up on is when those things like identity cards and driver's licenses and all that changed, that's all part of technology and digital technology at that. You know, what does it mean and how does it work? And what kind of choice do you make? Right up till today in 10 airports in the United States, including Boston, when you go to check in now, TSA wants you to put your eye up to a reader so that the iris scan can actually check your face, but also part of that's an iris scan. And so what what happens to that picture that gets taken as you walk in? Well, interesting to know. TSA says, oh, well, we'd never keep that, you know oh, how long? Well, two years at the most, probably, except that another part of the same law says that information of that sort, when you cross a border, can be kept for up to, yes, ladies and gentlemen, 75 years. So these these are things that most people going around about their daily business don't have time to fuss around with. So the hope here is that If you listen for eight or nine minutes, if something has happened recently, you'll at least know that it's happened. And very often, part of what happens on the program is we say, well, you know, if you'd like more information on the page for today's program in the WERU archives, there are these three or four places for you to go to get more information. So, the, you can't obviously cover huge amounts of information in a few minutes, but you can talk about it and then give people who are interested uh, a place to go to get more information that they can read for themselves. It's really interesting. One of the best polling organizations in the country, in my opinion, is the, the Pew Center and the Pew Center for Research does polls that are probably, again, in my opinion, among the most accurate that you're ever going to see in the United States. And the Pew Center has been following questions about people's sense of privacy for quite a few years now. And one of the things that I found interesting is that The concern about privacy is very, very high and also and has not gone down. In fact, it's gone up in the last couple of years. And at the same time, people clearly believe that their information about themselves, personal information, is being collected and is being used in ways that they don't know and they are worried about it. Now, how does that jibe with, you know, people having Facebook accounts or using TikTok or whatever it is? And the the way that it jibes is that many people understand that they're making a trade-off, but... Interestingly, many people want to have more control about it. So they're concerned about their own personal privacy and autonomy. They understand that using technology, which in many cases, from their perspective, they don't have much choice about, but they're worried about it because they feel they have no control over how their information is used. Now, the European Union, and actually the state of California, uh, and to their credit, the state of Illinois, have some, I think, pretty effective laws that give people more power over how their information is collected and how it's used and give them opportunities to On the one hand, to correct it, because who the heck knows what <laughs> is in your credit report or whatever, you know? And if they don't want the data collected to say, no, you can't take this. The United States as a whole, however, and anybody who pays any attention to what's going on in our Congress knows that the United States has done bupkis, zero, nothing about personal privacy and online privacy. With the exception of the Children's Protective Privacy Act, there's nothing in the United States that talks about control of personal privacy. In Illinois, if, for example, TikTok or anybody else collects your biometric uh, identification, for example, a picture of your face or a thumbprint or any other kind of information that is identifiable through your body without getting your personal opt-in, that is to say, I understand you're collecting this and I give you permission. If they don't do that, they can be sued and have been successfully, but that is that is one state and that is one kind of personal information. So uh, everybody in Congress, if you stop them walking in or out of, you know, the House of Representatives or the Senate would say, yes, we definitely need to do something about this. But so far, nothing.
0: You've recently done a series, a nine part series that just wrapped up about AI, which, like you said earlier, has been in the news so much. I just did a real quick search, news search on AI this morning on Google. And of course, this isn't the way everybody's Google will come up because that's all very, that's a whole other topic of what we're talking about. But the first ones that came up for me were BBC, workers are already replaced by artificial intelligence. New York Times, how to use AI as a shopping assistant. Oh, there's that. Um at the Independent, AI finds mysterious shapes hidden in Peru's Nazca desert, including an alien. The Atlantic, AI junk is flooding Etsy. Fortune, AI is coming for the jobs you least expect, and it means everyone needs new skills. And uh, the last one on the first page that comes up, well, no, there are a couple more here. The Register, AI is going to eat itself. Experiments show people training bots are using Bots. TechCrunch this week in AI, Apple makes machine learning moves, and the information, Meta wants companies to make money off open source AI and challenge to Google. There was also a story in the news this week about someone who got a call from a voice that was, I believe it was their daughter, it might have been grandchild, because this is usually done on elders, um, you know, those scams with the grandchild's in trouble, wire us money right away that often were done through like text messaging or whatever. Well, this had the actual granddaughter's voice on it, saying that she's in trouble, just help, I need the money. They paid the ransom. They found out later that the daughter was fine and off wherever she was supposed to be. The plot of this whole thing was to keep her on the phone, the person they were getting the money from that they were extorting, on the phone long enough to to not let her hang up and try to check anything, but they had the voice of the granddaughter there and that was the clincher and so she sent the money and it turns out that was all done through AI because with just a few words, a few sentences of your voice, they can take that and expand on it and make all kinds of words and make it sound like you're saying things that that you never said. Deep fakes, right? Fit yes, the definition. That, that certainly
2: okay. is. Well, last week, one of the senators from Connecticut, Senator Blumenthal, was uh, opening a session of a Senate committee that was going to look into AI and potential regulation and so forth. And he opened it by, on a screen, having what appeared to be him, welcoming everyone And opening this and saying exactly what the purpose of this meeting was, except that every single word that was spoken was written by Chatbot, by ChatGPT, and it was his voice, it was his intonation, it was clearly him if you looked at it, except it was not him, it was not his voice, and it was not his words these days there are services that with about 10 seconds of someone's vo- a recording of someone's voice, they can, in fact, I've, I've done this uh, as a sample on the electronic cottage once where I just said, you know, welcome to notes from the electronic cottage. I'm Jim Campbell on today's show. We'll do this. Boom. And then I ran it through a service to, uh, have that said in a female voice, and it was amazing. perfect intonation, perfect pronunciation, perfect rhythm.
0: Let's play this feature. This was the ninth
2: I think the ninth yeah that's that's kind of the summary thus far of what we have, and so it's just kind of to put together. The key points of all the things that were spoken about in the, the one before first. that. Yeah. And it's yeah.
0: definitely worth going through this. You know, I'd heard most of these before, but going through and starting with the first one and then putting them in sequence, they really build on each other. But nine does wrap them up and tie them all together. So let's listen to that real quick in case our listeners today on Main Currents haven't heard notes from the electronic cottage before. And uh, we'll play that and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more.
2: Welcome to Notes from the Electronic Cottage. I'm Jim Campbell. This is the ninth episode in our series on artificial intelligence. If you missed any of the previous episodes and are interested in hearing them, they're all available on the Public Affairs Archive at www.weru.org under Notes from the Electronic Cottage. Today, we'll sum up what we've looked at so far, Though, given the very fluid and constantly changing nature of artificial intelligence today, and the discussions underway about its future impact, we doubt this will be the final episode on this topic here at the Electronic Cottage, but it is the final episode in this short series. So, let's consider what we know about, at least so far, the saga of artificial intelligence, or AI, what it means today, and what it may come to mean tomorrow in our increasingly digital world. First off, what does the term artificial intelligence actually refer to? There's no really official definition, but basically it refers to any kind of task performed by a machine that would normally require human intelligence. And of course, there's the question of, what is intelligence? When discussing artificial intelligence, the type of intelligence referred to is the type that's defined by the Cambridge Dictionary as, quote, the ability to learn, understand, and make judgments or have opinions that are based on reason, end quote. Artificial intelligence does not, at least at this point, have the qualities of making judgment or having opinions, but AI can perform many tasks using different machine capabilities that, if performed by a human, would require intelligence. And that immediately suggests that we're talking about different levels of intelligence. The AI that's all around us today is what's referred to as narrow or weak artificial intelligence. Machines can perform many tasks much better than humans, but those tasks are limited to specific domains. Text generators, for example, much in the news of late, generate written text much faster than humans and much of the time as grammatically correct and as factually accurate as people though there are still many whoppers that text generators come up with because of course text generators today do not have the type of understanding about the world that humans do ask a text generator to drive a car or decide whether an x-ray indicates a cancerous growth and it's not going to be very good at those tasks because they are outside of its domain of competence. There's another, not yet developed, kind of artificial intelligence that, in theory, will be able to perform tasks across many different domains, just as humans do today. That type of AI is referred to as strong or general AI. Are we likely to actually see that type of artificial general intelligence? And if so, Will it be anytime soon? Some technologists, philosophers, and others don't think we'll ever see artificial general intelligence. But in the wake of the developments in narrow AI in the past decade or so, their number is shrinking. A significant number of people working in the AI field think that not only is artificial general intelligence possible, but that it's probably inevitable. Suppose they're right. When might we see Artificial General Intelligence, or AGI? Opinions on that question also seem to be changing. The development of what's called machine learning has had a huge effect in looking at the timeline. Machine learning is an approach in which humans give machines general goals, some general techniques, and a very large set of training data to explore and then let the machine figure out the best way to achieve its goals. A great majority of the almost magical-seeming growth in AI capabilities in recent years stem from machine learning, or ML. In machine learning, machines make their own rules for figuring out how to do things. Things such as telling a cat from a dog, or a bike from a car, or deciding whether a moving car is close enough to be a danger to the car that we're riding in, and then reducing speed or changing direction to reduce the danger without any human input. How does a machine know how to do these kinds of things? We don't know in any specific way, since once given goals and a huge amount of data to mine, the machine works internally in ways that even those who started the process don't understand in any detail. Narrow AI is improving its capabilities by the month, maybe by the week at present, and will continue to grow as part of our everyday lives, even if we often do not know that AI is at work when we apply for a loan or go to the doctor or, like Paul McCartney, put together what will be known as the Beatles' last song. And if many of those working in the field are correct, we may see artificial general intelligence come about in the lifetimes of many of us alive today. If AGI does come to pass, what will that mean for the way that we humans live in the world? That is a very big question, and since we have no way of knowing the answer for sure, what anyone says now is just basically speculation. At one extreme, AGI could lead to a world in which humans would no longer need to work to have our basic needs met, and could therefore devote themselves to developing art or games or anything else that interests them. In short, a sort of utopia in which humans would thrive as never before in human history. At the other extreme, as letters from some AI leaders have recently asserted, powerful artificial general intelligence might possibly lead to the extinction of humans, or in humans being relegated to a far inferior status as many of us humans have done with other species, even those most biologically close to us. These recent warnings of dystopia are accompanied by calls for preventing them from coming to be by placing guardrails around the development of AI. That is something that even AI developers admit is unlikely to happen on a voluntary basis. There's just too much money at stake. Instead, any regulation of AI to be effective will have to be done by governments, preferably on an international scale. So, there's a very high-level summation of what we've discussed in this short series on AI thus far. For those interested, Many of the previous episodes in the series mentioned books and other resources that are worth a look to better understand the reality of AI. What could be, as one scientist put it, as momentous a moment in human history as the development of fire, except, we might add, that fire has never threatened the complete extinction of humans, nor, more hopefully, the development of a virtual utopia. Stay tuned. Here and everywhere, AI will continue to be amazing, almost magic in the short term, and will certainly change our lives in the long term. What that change will mean for us humans is very much up for grabs today, and we'll do our best to follow whatever developments emerge right here on future editions of Notes from the Electronic Cottage.
0: You're listening to Main Currents on weru I'm Amy Brown. That was the final episode in a nine-part series on AI, produced by Jim Campbell, my guest today, for Notes from the Electronic Cottage. This conversation was recorded on June 16th. Sadly, Jim died suddenly just five days later. Before I ask some questions about some of the scarier possible impacts, let's tell the rest of that story about that last Beatles song. I, so tell us about this.
2: Well, actually, the what the process is what Paul McCartney is going to try to do is uh, to sing with John, and so what he's done is, as I understand it, is he's gone back to an old uh, demo tape, essentially it was it was never released of a song, and it's there's a whole band playing on it. But what AI has made it possible to do in a reasonable way was to isolate John's voice alone out of the whole band and the instruments and everything else. And that then allows Paul McCartney to sing along with it and put a new band behind it. So it's not, in this particular case, it's not a question of taking a little snip of John's voice and making him sing something that was written yesterday. This is actually isolating his voice in a way that, until very recently, would have been pretty much impossible to do.
0: I heard someone interviewed on a news program recently who thought that the recording of Trump talking about his boxes at Mar-a-Lago was actually possibly something that they made up, that that wasn't really him. I mean, that I don't think is like is the official line on Fox News or anything, but at least it's kind of creeping into the consciousness of people politically that they can have one more reason to dismiss anything that they don't like by saying it's, you know, one of these deep fakes or something.
2: Well, as a matter of fact, there have been several cases in which politicians have actually said that, said, no. I I never said that. That's not me. I never had that position. And it's very, very difficult to, it is possible often, but it is very difficult to tell if something is in fact a digitally created deep fake. There was one that, uh, you know, showed Mr. Trump being wrestled to the street and handcuffed It never happened, but that made the rounds on social media of one sort or another. So, yeah, in fact, I came across a scientist who really knows what he's talking about, in my opinion, who said, um, I don't know if we will ever be able to know again what is actually true.
0: Yeah, that is just mind-blowing. Blowing, absolutely mind-blowing. And when we were talking about setting up this interview, around the time we were having that discussion, there had just been a news story about uh, a picture that had been tweeted out that looked like a building near the Pentagon had been blown up, and it impacted the stock market. and And you said, fortunately, it happened early enough in the day that the stock markets didn't close as down as they did, and people had time to realize it was a deep fake. But we're used to reacting to things with immediacy, with other things that you're not sure if they're real or not. You have more time to research and try to figure out what's going on. But with things like a warning of a catastrophe, with you know, war game kinds of things, I mean, this is frightening in so many different ways. The ways that we have used to try to determine if something is, is real or not are not going to be applicable. So it seems like the only way to keep on top of it would be some kind of ethics. You mentioned maybe an oversight kind of board, but it would have to be international. And how in the world would we get international agreement on anything? And then the governments have to be able to control it.
2: Well, I think that it's very instructive to me to think about nuclear arms. Because that there's only two international treaties regarding tremendously destructive forces that everyone or virtually every major country in the world has agreed to. One is about nuclear weapons and the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And the other is about the use of um, poisonous gas. The one... The poisonous gas has been fairly well adhered to. Yeah, not completely. But we very, very well know that hasn't been the case. But have we had a nuclear explosion above ground since 1945? We haven't. And part of the reason, in my opinion, is that we saw what a nuclear bomb could do. We've still, you know, you can go anytime and find a lot of pictures of what that is, both the explosion itself and the aftermath in the two Japanese cities that were affected. Nobody wants that to happen, particularly in a world where it's not only one place that has that capability. Um, The letter that went out Um, On May 30th, signed by 350 technologists and AI practitioners that said that we, we need to put avoiding the extinction of the human race through artificial intelligence on a par with nuclear weapons and uncontrolled pandemics the the point there is most countries recognize that a nuclear war would be the end many countries although not everybody within the countries recognize that a panic for which uh, i'm sorry not a pandemic for which there is no cure could mean the end of the human race and what the people who signed this letter are saying is yes and artificial intelligence potentially is in that same category and we need to we need to treat it as something that is as powerful as nuclear weapons or an uncontrolled pandemic and we need to then prepare for this and to build as best we can, limitations to reduce the possibility of that happening.
0: The technologies out there, it's, you know, they're talking about open source. I don't know how much it is already and how many people are able to use it already, but it's out there. You don't need to get uranium. You don't need to, uh, you know, it's not hard for people who know how to use it. To exploit it already So then you go back to People's own ethics And whether or not We can count on that right? Well
2: You you also have the force of law Number one And you have another thing that people don't Pay Much attention to But um, how do you Train a an AI System What do you need to do that Yes, any competent or very smart uh, computer programmer can do the programming, but you need millions often. You need millions of examples for the AI to learn from.
0: Right. So like for a car, you need to put in like a million different images of cars so it understands how to generalize it, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, that's the basic idea. Right. And and so you need enormous computing power okay. and access to enormous uh, databases of whatever it is that you're trying to teach or or not teach, but let the A.I. learn how to do those. Those are somewhat uh, re. re- redeeming and or reducing factors so that everybody in their garage can't do this, even if they might be a competent programmer. That's a good piece of news. The bad piece of news is that the only outfits that are going to be able to really do this stuff are outfits that have the wherewithal to have that kind of computing power and that have that have access to that kind of test sets, or training sets, or both. So that puts a little bit of a lid on it. But anyway, the long and short of it is that some way or other, we need to have a way to understand that the bad, the downside of it is a tremendously potent and dangerous threat. You can Take a quote from Stephen Hawking, one of the greatest scientists of our century, no longer with us.
0: And we'll wrap up with this.
2: So this is this is a quote from Stephen Hawking in 2014. The development of full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. It would take off on its own and redesign itself at an ever-increasing rate. Humans who are limited by slow biological evolution, couldn't compete and would be superseded. 2014. Fast forward, Maine, 2023. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority along other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war, end quote.
0: And who was it who says that they hope that the machines will at least keep us around as pets?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was um, Steve Wozniak, the right. other Steve of Apple computers. Right.
0: Well, we're out of time. This is a fascinating conversation. I wish I could keep you here, here all afternoon. I know we say that a lot in interviews, but in this case, you're um, – it's reassuring, actually, some of what you're saying and even more frightening the rest of it. But if people want to, who are listening, want to hear more about this, go to weru.org, click on the public affairs archives, and then you can go to the notes from the electronic cottage section and listen to this nine part series with our guest today, Jim Campbell, host or, and coming up, uh, Notes from the Electronic Cottage is still on Thursday mornings at seven thirty, even though he's shifting gears a little bit for now. What are you? Are you doing another series, or will you be back to doing just week by week programs? What's What's looking at? Yeah. What do you got on the? Like?
2: Um, yes, week by week programs, and I think the next one is going to be. And uh, I know, given your tendency to be a little worried about the world, <laughs> there's another one for you. Me? Uh, <clears throat> yes, it turns out that it is now possible to collect a person's dna out of the air
0: okay oh, well, whatever yeah uh,
2: so we'll talk about that and-
0: yeah i mean it's kind of getting to be like this nihilistic point in history where it's like all right whatever i give up you got me <laughs> i'm just gonna go <laughs> swimming right now or something you know? well yeah. thanks for talking with us today jim okay You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on the first Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Amy Brown. My guest today was Jim Campbell, one of WERU's founders, a person I've considered a mentor for over 20 years, and as Matt said at the start of the show, a person we all relied on here at WERU for advice on a range of subjects. Over the years, he produced many shows. You may remember his days co-hosting Thursday's Morning Maine with Karen Frangoulis or his Camden Conference Reports. In 2022, he and I co-produced and co-hosted a year-long public affairs series called Maine, The Way Life Could Be, which has been nominated for a Maine Association of Broadcasters Award. This interview was recorded on Friday, June 16th. Sadly, the following Wednesday, June 20th, Jim died suddenly and unexpectedly. You can still find his work on our archives, including the AI series we talked about today, which turned out to be his last. I'd like to imagine Jim's spirit and the spirits of so many others we've lost over the past few years are still watching over WERU and encouraging future generations to make good radio in the words of the late Mike Joyce. Rest easy, Jim, and thank you.